This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in New York. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 It's Amelia. Thanks so much for tuning in to season two of the 50 Feminist States podcast. Today, we are headed to New York, where I'm visiting a friend and colleague of mine in Syracuse. Her name is Ashley Bohr, and she's a badass academic and activist. Ashley was actually one of the first people that got me into feminist activism and organizing. And to be honest, she's been a big inspiration for my work on this podcast project and is generally just someone whose opinion I really value and trust. So that made this episode a lot of fun to record. That said, this episode was also pretty hard to work on because in it, we talk about organizing around an issue that has a long, nuanced history in global politics and a pretty contentious present among feminist organizers in the U.S. and world citizens at large. That issue is Palestinian liberation. The history of the region of Palestine, also known as the land of Israel or the Holy Land, is ancient, and human remains that have been discovered there date back over 1.5 million years. The land is a site of early human civilizations, and many major religions locate their origins there. It's impossible to recount all of those millions of years of history here, so knowing that I'm simplifying a very long series of events unfolding over millennia, I'm going to jump straight to the 20th century, as we do, to point out a few key events that are particularly relevant today. In negotiations with the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I, the British government took control of the region of Palestine during what is called its British Mandate period. This lasted roughly from 1920 to 1948. In 1948, just three years after the end of World War II, Israel was founded as a Jewish state. While the state received immediate support from U.S. and Soviet leaders, its founding also invoked immediate resistance from a coalition of Arab states calling for the self-determination of Arab peoples across Palestine, whose homes and land were seized in the founding of Israel. Since then, Israeli history has been a string of conflicts and armistices with various Arab and Palestinian factions as the state has sought to build a Jewish homeland. During one of these conflicts in 1988, the state of Palestine declared itself as a sovereign state claiming the West Bank and Gaza Strip as independent from Israel. Today, there are almost 8.9 million people living in Israel, 75% of which are Jewish. The state of Palestine, which is not recognized as sovereign by the U.S., has a population of 4.4 million people, 93% of which are Muslim, and conflict is still rife within the region. But how, you may or may not be asking yourself, is all of this relevant to contemporary feminist activism in the U.S. and in New York specifically, as that is what this podcast episode is about? Well, New York City is home to the largest Jewish population outside of Israel in the world. As of 2016, Jews made up approximately 12% of New York City's overall population, although in the 1950s, Jews made up 25% of New York City's population. So discussion of and organizing around Israel-Palestine relations is particularly relevant to New York. 
The question of support for Israel or Palestine has also been a contentious issue within feminist activism for decades. Very recently, this was also brought back to public attention as arguments about Palestine and Israel among the Women's March leadership team were publicized by national media outlets. If you want more information on those specific events, I'd suggest listening to the January 11th episode of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. A surface-level recap, however, might be that feminist activists disagree on whether support for Palestinians must be a core tenet in contemporary feminist activism, leading some of them to say that you cannot be both a Zionist and a feminist, while others argue that criticizing Israel is in some way inherently anti-Semitic and that feminism must support Israel as a Jewish homeland. There's a lot to unpack there, so I want to get to our interview. As I mentioned, Ashley Bohr is an academic and activist who's been living in New York, Here's Ashley introducing herself and talking a bit about her background. I'm Ashley. I live in Syracuse, New York. Uh, I'm here teaching uh, at a liberal arts college, and I'm also the senior campaigns organizer for an organization called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. So I grew up as a pretty religious Jew in Los Angeles. I went to Jewish schools. I went to Jewish summer camps. You know, I was involved in Jewish youth movement stuff. And also part of my family is Israeli and lives in Israel, in Jerusalem, family that are current and former members of the Israeli military. Um, And my whole life, I really was taught that almost like the kind of glue of what it meant to be Jewish was Israel, right? It was this political state. Uh, and I grew up really being committed to this project of like supporting whatever the state of Israel does because it is the state of Israel, right? As if it were this kind of natural, important, perfect state or something. Um, and then as I started learning more about the political situation, as I started learning Arabic, as I started being more and more involved in community justice work, I became more exposed to the ways in which this image of Israel that I had always had of being democratic and just and defending the rights of vulnerable people was really I mean, propaganda is the only word that I can use to describe what um, what that narrative is like. This is where we start to get into why Israel-Palestine relations is such a challenging topic to discuss and why people feel so strongly about it. Israel is an incredibly important part of Jewish identity in the U.S. and around the world, but it is also a space of occupation and violence. Here, Ashley, explain that more. Now, when I... I go to Israel, I go to Palestine, it's very clear to me the ways in which the state is built on racist policy. It's built on taking land from indigenous people in Palestine. It's built on a whole series of legalized discriminations and segregation and a brutal military occupation Um, that has two different sets of laws for Jews and for Palestinians. Those who live in the West Bank and Gaza are under de facto martial law. They have curfews. 
Little children that want to go to school have to cross checkpoints in order to get to school, checkpoints that can be closed for absolutely no reason. In order to build homes or schools or lay down water lines or electricity in parts of the West Bank, Palestinians need formal written permission from the Israeli civil administration. And as my friend Ode once said to me, we know when they say that we need permission from the civil administration that it's impossible. Civil administration denies 99% of all requests for building permits um, in Area C of the West Bank. There's a segregated road system, right? There are roads you can only drive on if you're Jewish. There are streets inside the city of Hebron where you cannot walk on a side of the street if you're Palestinian. They're, they're just like such deep levels of segregation um, that, I mean, the, the, there's a reason why people use the term apartheid to talk about what is happening in Israel and Palestine at this point in time. You have a situation where people need state-sanctioned permits in order to go visit their family members or to go pray at the mosque in Jerusalem, right? Like these are the kinds of things that I look at them and say, there, there is no way that this is about equality, justice, or democracy. It's impossible. And, and really what I see Israel doing and it has been doing since its foundation in 1948 is exactly the opposite of all of the things that I consider to be Jewish values and Jewish commitments. So when I say that I'm a non-Zionist Jew, I mean that I have deep respect and love for the history of my people and my community and that the things that I see Israel as a state doing, as its state policies, as its state objectives are racist, dehumanizing, and based in all of the, the things that from my perspective, Judaism has consistently fought against. God, this it gets really complicated, right? Because on the one hand, right, even though I disagree with founding the state of Israel in historic Palestine as a solution, I do understand that there was some part of that foundation or that, you know, state that came out of a response to a specifically intense historical period of genocide against Jewish people in Europe and in the larger context of multiple generations and centuries of persecution and structural anti-Semitism. And so I think for Jews who support Israel, there is something really seductive about the potential safety that the idea of a state of Jews and for Jews means for them, because I think there is a really deep-seated narrative in the Jewish community that no matter how well Jewish people are doing at the current moment, that that's always changeable and it can change really quickly and i think may, i think some of the ways in which that's 
is in a certain sense true. Like we can see that with the rise of the current white nationalist right wing in the United States, there is a a deep sense of anti-Semitism connected to their white supremacist politics. And so there is something that's that is scary, I think, for Jewish people about living inside inside a predominantly Christian nation given the history of predominantly Christian persecution. Um, I think for non-Jewish people, right, I think there's like, there there are multiple sides to this and histories and positions sort of matter in thinking about why people are really committed to this issue. I think the reason why a lot of non-Jews are interested in, or committed to Israel is a combination of historical guilt, Islamophobia, and... I think there's a way in which Jews have assimilated a lot in the U.S. that makes them, us, them, makes us less scary to most white people than Palestinians. Even Palestinian Christians who are also dominated by, is, like, by the Israeli state. And so I think there are ways in which these historical, these historical narratives and past traumas of persecution and genocide and anti-Semitism, even though they're not present and real in the current moment in ways that are threatening, I think they form this background fear that leads both Jews and non-Jews to support the state of Israel. I also think non-Jews are like non-Jews who aren't openly anti-Semitic or committed white supremacists, I think they're worried about being called anti-Semitic if they don't support the state of Israel, which is obviously a common yet ridiculous sort of charge, right? Like, no one thinks that if you criticize American foreign policy, that therefore you deeply hate every single American citizen. That's not a thing that anyone thinks is true. And yet in the case of Israel, People are so concerned that if you criticize a political state's policy, somehow you're saying that you hate all of the people who follow a religion all around the world in a way that's, I I just think, so clearly ridiculous. Ashley's final point here is definitely relevant for contemporary feminism and politics at large, and it has rung true in my own attempts to navigate contemporary media and the world. I often find myself reading the news and asking, is this person being called anti-Semitic because they're saying awful things about Jewish people or because they're critiquing Israel? Ashley's someone who has helped me figure out the difference between the two. As someone who grew up in a small town in North Carolina that had neither a synagogue nor a mosque, for a long time, Israel and Palestine felt very far away from my concerns in the world. One of the first ways I started learning about it, though, was when I noticed friends and people in my social media circles going to Israel on something called birthright. I asked Ashley if she could explain birthright for us and also explore why she thinks it's problematic. So birthright is marketed as a free trip to Israel for young Jews living abroad, college age up to, I think they recently raised the age limit to 32 or something. And it's incredibly attractive for young Jews, especially those who've spent their whole lives learning in their synagogues and their schools and their youth movements that Israel is the pinnacle of of what it means to be Jewish. And who doesn't want to take a free international trip, right, to the Holy Land? 
I mean, <laughs> it's not a hard sell uh, for most for most Jews. It's not a hard sell. The problem is because it's a, a paid-for trip by the Israeli government, it's not there just to provide a fun experience to Jews. It's there as a propaganda trip. It is there to promote a particular vision of Israel to young people around the world so that as they grow older, they will continue to donate to organizations that support Israel and to support politicians that support Israeli policy. And so on these birthright trips, no one ever talks to Palestinians, right? It is as if they don't exist. They learn a version of Israeli history that is fantastical is the only word that I can put to it. They meet with members of the military as their constant chaperones. And overall, what the trip does is it reinforces the idea that Israel is this great, beautiful democracy filled with great parties and wonderful people while completely erasing and refusing to engage with the ways that most Israelis' lives are made possible and subsidized by the fact that they're on stolen land, in stolen homes, frequenting places that Palestinians cannot get to and would have to cross multiple checkpoints and get official government permission in order to even enter, not to mention the kinds of daily humiliation and personal, person-to-person racism that Palestinians face every day in Israel. So in addition to the fact that this trip just, you know, erases, covers over, and pretends like Palestinians don't exist, there's a real problem, I think, with saying that Jews from around the world Jews like me. I was born in Los Angeles, California. I've lived in the U.S. my entire life, right? There's a real problem with saying I have a birthright, not just to go to Israel, but also to live there and to become a citizen. As a Jewish person, if I want to move to Israel, I can have an accelerated track to citizenship that comes with uh, what are called aliyah benefits. So, housing assistance and an income and language training and a whole, a whole bunch of other state-sanctioned benefits. I get a fast track to citizenship as my birthright. On the other hand, Palestinians who may have been born in Palestine or whose parents may have been born in Palestine, whose family, whose friends still live in Palestine, people who have their actual roots in that land are barred from returning, and many of them are not allowed to even visit. And so there's something that is really problematic with the creation of this fun program for young people because of the way that it kind of subtly, you know, um, creates this idea or reinforces this idea that Jews, on the basis of being Jews, no matter how far away they live from this place, no matter whether or not they've ever been there before, have any contact at all, have a birthright to be in this place that people who are actually from there have no birthright to. 
Ashley contrasts the experience of going on birthright with her own experiences traveling to Israel and Palestine and the experiences of Palestinians attempting to move throughout the region. Yeah, look, I mean, honestly, for a white American Jew with an American passport, Israeli family, and who speaks Hebrew nearly fluently, I don't have many problems in Ben-Gurion Airport, you know? Like, it's pretty easy for me to be like, hello, and, you know, to speak in Hebrew, to answer questions um, about what I'm doing and why I'm going there. I do often get asked questions that are, I think, designed to prove whether or not I'm Jewish. So the last time that I entered the country, I was asked what Jewish holidays I celebrate and how I celebrate them. Once I was asked when my bat mitzvah was and the name of the congregation that bat mitzvahed me. Um, once I was asked what like what synagogue congregation I'm affiliated with. So there are lots of questions that I'm asked that are specifically around my Jewishness, which might sound strange to Americans for whom I think the concept of democracy and the First Amendment broadly means that you shouldn't be asked about your religious affiliation and how you celebrate and what you believe as a prerequisite for entering a country, right? That doesn't seem to be the most relevant criteria for whether or not one should cross a border, but this is common daily practice um, in Israel. And the truth is, as a white American Jew, I don't have a lot of problem answering those questions. I can answer them in Hebrew, which they're always very impressed by. And so my issue, generally, I don't have a lot of, of problems. Um, and yet, it is common for Palestinians or or people who border agents suspect of having Palestinian heritage or sound as if they have Palestinian sounding last names or people that they suspect of having friends who are Palestinians routinely get detained and interrogated at the airport, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days. And we're talking about processes where people's phones are searched, their Facebook profiles are uncovered, their emails are gone through, all in order to determine whether or not the Israeli government wants to let them into the country. And while it is certainly true that over the past several years, more and more Jewish activists who support Palestinians have been detained and denied entry, it is absolutely true that the vast majority of people who are subjected to intense interrogation, humiliating searches, including strip searches, are nearly almost always Palestinian, Palestinian-American, Arab, or Muslim. And this is a common feature of what it is like entering or leaving the state of Israel if you are Palestinian, Arab, or Muslim. And it's um, one of the ways in which it is the clearest and most obvious place that racial profiling is not just allowed, but is actual state policy about who can come into the state and who can't, right? It's explicit racial profiling that's used all the time. Having learned more about the racism and violence that Palestinians face, I wanted to learn from Ashley how people working from the U.S. can help. 
Here are her suggestions. Like most political issues, I think there's a lot of work to do in a lot of places and on a lot of layers. I think first and foremost, you know, the United States gives more military aid to Israel than to anywhere else on the planet. And that military aid to Israel goes directly into policing, harassing, arresting, and incarcerating Palestinian people. And so one of the big hurdles, at least for those of us that are located in the U.S., is to, I think, stop the military aid to Israel, right? And that's something that I think people that are living in lots of places can can work on. I think there are larger projects of dismantling Islamophobia um, and anti-Arab racism in our communities, both Jewish and not Jewish. Um, And I think there are significant strides toward undoing racism that are specifically related to Muslim and Arab Americans that often gets left out of the conversation on race, which I think is overly or is often figured in black white binary terms and so i think you know one of the deep structural changes that would have to happen i think in order for the u.s at least to change its position in blind support for israeli policy is dismantling islamophobia and anti-arab racism i think there is also a lot of work to do inside religious communities about the reasons why they support Israel. So there's a lot of work to be done inside the Jewish community about decoupling or or dissociating Jewishness from this authoritarian, anti-democratic state. I think there's also some work to be done in Christian evangelical communities who, by the way, are huge supporters of Zionism and financial donors to a variety of institutions that hold up the occupation. And so there's some reckoning to do inside Christian communities as well about how and why um, they've been so in their ideas and in their actions and in their money and in the way they vote committed to supporting Israeli state policies, which are racist. And then the, you know, the the kind of work that the Center for Jewish Nonviolence does and the work that I'm, the piece that I'm the most involved with on a day-to-day basis is, you know, we bring Jewish activists from around the world to go to Palestine and to build direct relationships with Palestinian communities and to work with them on community projects and on direct action against um, the occupation because there's immense power in solidarity on this issue and on all issues. And so also joining organizations or joining protests in solidarity um, with the people of Palestine, those are all important sort of pieces of this issue. I also happen to be a supporter of the boycotts, divestment, and sanctions movement, which calls for boycotts of products that are produced in Israeli settlements, divesting from companies that profit off of the occupation, and international sanctions against the state of Israel for 
the variety of ways in which it's breaking international law and, and human rights conventions. And so one of the just kind of basic, easy things that people can do is look up a list of companies that profit off of the occupation. And there are a very long list of them. And to refuse to support those companies um, and to ask their community organizations and their grocery stores and their workplaces not to buy printers from Hewlett-Packard or to stock Sabra Hummus or any of the other, you know, organizations and, and businesses that profit off of the occupation. So there are, you know, sort of small level boycott campaigns that can also be incredibly helpful in legitimizing the Palestinian people's struggle and movement for self-determination in their own land. And how does all of this tie back into our focus on feminist activism specifically? So I think the first thing that's important when we're talking about feminism and queer inclusivity in relationship to the issue of Israel and Palestine is to to really reckon with what it means that the occupation does not say, oh, well, if you're a woman or if you're a queer Palestinian, then you can walk on this segregated road or you can go to school without crossing a checkpoint or, oh, Israeli soldiers won't enter your home in the middle of the night and upturn all your belongings and scare your children. Like the fact is that queer and women Palestinians are subject to the same kinds of intense harassment, discrimination, and racism as non-queer and non-women Palestinians, right? And there's something, I think, really essential if we're thinking about what it means to do feminism and to do queer politics. That means that we have to show up for each other in ways that aren't only reducible to our gender or our sexual orientation, But it's about showing up for each other in order to build a world in which we're free and powerful and can build community. And there is nothing about racism and discrimination and segregation and harassment that fits with at least what I mean when I say feminism and queer liberation. The other thing to note is that while Israel loves to portray itself as this gender progressive state that, you know, has a kind of queer Mecca in Tel Aviv, the way that Israel enforces the occupation is deeply gendered and is deeply queer phobic. So one of the tactics that the Israeli government, um, that the Israeli military uses is that it will infiltrate Palestinian queer spaces and then threaten Palestinian queer people with outing them to their communities unless they become informants to the Israeli military. And there is nothing that strikes me as being feminist or queer positive about cornering people and giving them an ultimatum based on their non-consensual outing. That is the exact opposite of queer and feminist politics. There are also, you know, Israeli politicians who frequently make statements and use images that are degrading to Palestinian women, that are 
openly misogynistic and sexist toward Palestinian women. There's a, an intense debate and discussion in Israeli society that talks about um, Palestinian population growth in ways that deny or degrade the ability of Palestinian families to have reproductive control over their own communities. Again, none of that sounds feminist to me. Like, I, th I think Palestinian women, like I think all women and all people should have control over their own reproductive capacities and not have the number of children that they decide to bring into this world subjected to political debate and critique. That, again, doesn't sound as, you know, a, a pro-choice feminist. Uh, that doesn't sound like like choice and freedom to me. But I also think there's something really important that I've learned from the reproductive justice community about how reproductive justice and race are intertwined, which is that reproductive justice is not only about the ability to make a decision to end a pregnancy or to carry a pregnancy to term, but it's about the ability to have power in your life to bring up a child in conditions that you want and that you desire. And what the Israeli occupation does is it makes that impossible for Palestinian women, for Palestinian families, for Palestinian queer people to build lives and build families and raise children and form communities under conditions of their own choosing, right? Under conditions that are consistent with their hopes and dreams and goals, these things just don't go together. And so for me, it's deeply important as a feminist and as a queer person to support the Palestinian movements for liberation precisely because I think that's what's demanded by being a feminist and by being a queer person who is in solidarity with other queer people. Solidarity with everyone seeking liberation from racist, sexist, classist, and otherwise oppressive structures is a sweeping goal that has really come to characterize my feminist politics as I travel to do this work. I hope that you're learning as much as I am about the U.S. and the world through these episodes. Thanks so much for tuning back in to the 50 Feminist States podcast. I'll see you on the road. Estados feministas Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.